I agree with you entirely that, that, um, you know, we, we have, I think, overemphasized that you must be safe to, you know, engage in physical activity during pregnancy, probably to the point that it's not really, it's been more harmful than helpful. And certainly if you look over time at physical activity guidelines, they have changed wildly. ACOG, American College of Obstetricians Gynecologists, didn't have their first statement on pregnancy physical activity until the mid-80s. Are you pregnant or a new parent looking to ensure a better postpartum experience? Or are you a birth worker looking to improve your postpartum care skills? Check out Thriving After Birth, an online self-paced course by me, midwife and educator Tanya Tringali. It's 10 and a half hours of video content featuring experts in lactation, mental health, pelvic floor health, pediatric sleep issues. You also get worksheets and a workbook, as well as options to have a one-on-one session with me. Sign up at motherwitmaternity.com slash thriving, and let's improve postpartum care together. everyone. I'm your midwife, Tanya Tringali. Welcome to the Motherwit Podcast, a show about the issues we healthcare consumers and providers face every day as we interact with the medical system. We'll talk about its blind spots, shortcomings, and share strategies we can use to feel seen and heard no matter which side of the table we sit on. My guest today is Megan Garland, a PhD-prepared certified nurse midwife. Her clinical work focuses on low-resource and farm worker populations, on providing high-quality and respectful care. She's also a published researcher in the academic literature and has contributed to textbooks that will help shape the next generation of midwives. Megan recently completed her PhD at Rush University and has expanded her body of research to examine the gaps between physical activity recommendations and physical activity behavior among pregnant women. I've shared links to some of her work in her bio, which you can find in the show notes. Today, Megan is here to share her dissertation research, which examined the influences of theoretical and non-theoretical determinants of pregnancy physical activity among pregnant Black women. This foundational research will inform the development of culturally tailored physical activity interventions. As you know, if you've been listening to the show, the U.S. has the highest maternal mortality rate of all industrialized countries, and black women are three to four times more likely to die due to pregnancy-related complications, and that is neither due to genetics nor socioeconomic status. Neither of those things can explain this disparity. Racism and stress are to blame. However, physical activity is associated with lower rates of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and gestational diabetes, and I'm sure that's part of what brings Megan to this work. It's certainly part of what brings me to this work. Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited to have this particular conversation. Um, I think it's going to be different than any conversation I've had on this show before um, in that it's kind of uh, got an academic bend to it. I mean, this is your this is your baby. This is your work. This is your dissertation, right? That's right. That's right. It took me seven years to give birth to this baby. <sighs> <laughs> that is crazy. So I'm, I'm, I have so many questions for you, and I want to hear a little bit about the process. And I know that we have listeners 
who are considering doing something like this themselves, but have some fears. And so as much as I want to talk about your work, I also want to talk about just your feelings around doing it and advice for people who might take this path. Uh, but before we do all of that, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, um, let's see. I've been a midwife since 2002. Um, what inspired me to become a midwife was um, actually my undergraduate degree was in anthropology. And so I did some examinations of birth practices cross-culturally. I guess I'd always been fascinated by birth, by pregnancy and birth. I always just thought it was really interesting and cool. Um, and I, I learned that um, Western medicine is not the end-all be-all of birth practices. Um, shocked my little 19-year-old <laughs> brain. Um, but it was it was an eye opener that you know we, that Western medicine had gone into different cultures and really kind of mucked things up, you know, not mm -hmm. taken what they could learn, just really sort of imposed what what they uh, thought was right. And you, am I making air quotes here? Um, and um, and that and I wanted to learn more. Um, so I started looking a little bit into the history of midwifery in the United States, and this was actually from, um, you know, having a college, you know, job working in an organic restaurant that had, you know, a, a magazine section. And I was at work one day on my lunch break looking for something to read and picked up a copy of Midwifery Today. And my first thought was, wow, I thought they burned all the midwives as witches. <laughs> So I opened Midwifery Today and started reading and was like, this is so interesting. Why is it that, that midwifery doesn't seem to be more widely practiced in the United States? It wasn't visible to me in my community. And so I started digging into literature because I'm a little nerdy science girl um, and uh, um, discovered that there were there was good evidence for midwifery care. Um, it just wasn't mainstreamed into American medicine. And I really came away from that experience thinking, boy, every woman deserves a midwife. Um, and that I could be that person to provide that type of care. And so that's really kind of how I got started. So I went from being an anthropology major, finished my anthro degree, enrolled in nursing prereqs, went to nursing school. Um, and after a couple of years of practicing as an RN, um, applied to midwifery school. But you became a nurse always knowing you were going to be a midwife. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I made a conscious decision about, you know, do I want to be a nurse midwife? Do I want to be a direct entry midwife? I went through that whole process and, you know, evaluated what I thought was going to work best for me in my life and decided that um, I would pursue the nurse midwifery route. But I've certainly enjoyed working with my direct entry colleagues over the years as well. So there's more than one way to be a midwife. Yeah, totally. Well, this is this conversation is already really fun for me because like I know you, but I don't know you that well. Um, but now I know we have some other things in common. I too thought all midwives had been burned at the stake. <laughs> <laughs> that was exactly my you know, thought when I found a midwife to take care of me when I was very young and pregnant um, and something I've never forgotten. And I too explored all of the various paths to becoming a midwife and ultimately became a nurse, even though I my goal was to be a midwife uh, because I didn't have a bachelor's degree at the time and it didn't make sense to, you know, finish my degree in theater and dance and then start over again. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah, um, I love I love hearing people's uh, journeys into midwifery. So, OK, from there, 
I think there's probably another piece of history for you that might be relevant um, because obviously we're going to interface with this conversation around physical activity and exercise. So I'm assuming that you have an athletic background as well. Is that true? Uh, I, I did some sporting activities growing up. Um, I played volleyball very poorly, but very passionately in high school. <laughs> I love it. Um, I, I um, grew up in Michigan, um, uh, downhill skiing on, you know, basically frozen sand dunes um, and, you know, enjoyed that. <laughs> Um, so, but I never really considered myself an athlete, mm -hmm. um, you know, but I, I enjoyed being outdoors. I enjoyed being mm -hmm. physically active. So, you know, I was more of like a recreational, Hey, let's get outside and do something kind of person. So how do the two worlds collide? Oh gosh. I think probably the, the, the sort of like little kernel that, you know, first sort of like has grown into this giant plant was when I was pregnant myself and, mm -hmm. um, I kept my gym membership and mm -hmm. the looks that I got from people were mm -hmm. just stunning. And, you know, and it hadn't really occurred to me that I hadn't really seen pregnant women in the gym. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, people really looked askance once it was, once I was visibly, you know, showing my pregnancy, um, that, uh, and that, and it just sort of like, was like one of those little things I sort of tucked into the back of my mind. Why aren't there more pregnant people in the gym? <laughs> Are you able to think back to when fitness was just something that was interesting to you in the context of pregnancy and how you have changed kind of clinically speaking in terms of how you talk to people about this topic once upon a time and not just talk to them, but how you incorporated in incorporated it into your care then versus now. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So, um, I guess that in my clinical practice, I've always, I, I, I always recommended being physically active, but didn't really sit down and talk to people about what that meant, mm. what that meant to them, um, those kinds of things. It's like I had my, my spiel, you know, that I was like, being physically active during pregnancy is very important to you and your baby's <laughs> health. You know, you can kind of hear it in your, mm -hmm. in your brain, you know. Yeah. Um, and it really wasn't until... I was asked to write a textbook chapter, um, this was, gosh, many years ago now, um, about uh, lifestyles while pregnant. And it was sort of this grab bag textbook chapter that covered working, covered um, sexuality, covered like lots of sort of topics, um, uh, aspects of people's lives during their pregnancies. Um, and one of the included topics was physical activity. And, uh, and that was the first time I really sort of jumped into the literature. What specifically about physical activity is good for people? And one of the things that came through loud and clear was that there was fabulous evidence for, um, for the benefit of physical activity. I mean, basically, um, name a concern of pregnancy, being physically active is going to make it better. There are really very few things that um, physical activity don't improve during pregnancy. But very, very few people um, were able to be physically active during pregnancy, and no one knew why. People were trying interventions. Researchers were out there doing different things with, you know, uh, you know, from, um, you know, providing, um, you know, home 
exercise thinking, well, if, they, if people can do it at home, they'll do it. Or no, they need to be in a structured environment with, you know, with a, a specialist. And this is what's going to get people to be physically active. And none of it worked. Um, and so that was really, you know, uh, just like when I read that, uh, uh, the literature about the evidence of midwifery and decided that, you know, I was going to be that midwife. I read this literature about, um, that, that we didn't have an understanding of why people weren't able to either engage or maintain physical activity during pregnancy and said, well, I guess I'll have to be the one that's going to develop that evidence. And um, that was kind of what got me started on the track to doing a dissertation and <laughs> starting to develop my own um, body of research. That is so cool. I mean, I know our audience can't see us, but I'm kind of grinning from ear to ear. My cheeks kind of hurt because you're talking about like my two favorite things that I love so much. And it's so nice to hear that the kind of totality of your experience and how, you know, I love that analogy of, of how you found midwifery and how you, you know, ended up becoming so passionate about physical activity. Those two things really, really resonated with me. Um, oh, that's so cool. Okay. This actually segues nicely into how we actually met. Mm -hmm. um, and so Megan and I met because we were co-authors on a chapter in a textbook that will be coming out this year um, in a textbook called uh, Prenatal and Postnatal Care, A Person-Centered Approach. That's the name of the book. It will be the third edition of this book. Um, and just like you pointed out in your first chapter writing experience, in the, in the first and second edition, the chapter that we worked on was a little bit of a catch-all, maybe an improvement from where yours was back way back when, uh, but the catch-all was sexuality, environmental exposures, and exercise, and they were all thrown <laughs> in together, and that always bothered me about this book. It's a book that's very near and dear to me, and uh, it bothered me that exercise didn't have a standalone chapter, and it was something I was like making a strong case for, um, and so Megan and I came together, and Megan, as you are starting to gather, has this really wonderful focus on physical activity. I have this kind of like technical experience around exercise and with a little bit more of an emphasis or a lot more of an emphasis on, you know, athleticism, I'll say. Um, and honestly, Megan really opened my eyes to a whole part of the equation that I don't think about enough. Like I have a little bit of tunnel vision on the part of exercise that I love the most and the population that I like to work with the most. It's a, it's a very technical skill. Um, but Megan brings this midwifery perspective, for lack of a better word, to what most people engage in day to day. And so this might sound stupid of me to say, but I had not even fully accepted that physical activity and exercise were not synonyms until I started working on this chapter with Megan. And that's why Megan's on the show with me, because I think that what Megan does is so much more accessible than what I do. Um, and so with that said, I definitely want to give Megan lots of time to tell us about her work and her research. And I've read some amount of the paper that I understand will 
soon be published. Is that hopefully, hopefully this yeah. year, this year, I, I will get my <laughs> dissertation research published. It will happen. <laughs> well, I've gotten, I've had the pleasure of reading that and I definitely have lots of questions. Um, and I just, I think that this is a topic that's really interesting to people who listen to this show. Um, we know that people who listen to the show are healthcare consumers in many different ways who are interested in the perinatal period, but we've also got healthcare providers of all kinds of stripes, obviously plenty of midwives, but I talk enough about physical activity that we've got pelvic floor physical therapists who listen. Um, and I just think there's, there's a reason why uh, anyone listening to the show would find your, your, your work so interesting. So tell us a little bit about this study. Okay. Well, first of all, let me let me um, say a little bit more about the distinction between physical activity and exercise, um, because I do think that this is some, that they are words that are used sort of interchangeably. And certainly, before um, I really started on this this my journey, um, I kind of use those terms interchangeably too, but they're really very, they're, they are considered different things. So um, exercise is sort of planned recreation. That's the way that I sort of conceptualize this. So these are, these are choices that you make to engage in a behavior that is specifically intended to increase your respiratory rate, increase your heart rate, burn calories, whatever, whatever your goal is for that. And, um, Physical activity is really everything that you do during the day. So when, um, you know, I pour out dog food into my dog's dish, you know, out of the, the, the heavy bag, you know, that is physical activity. I am burning calories. I am exerting myself. You know, it's, it's a combination of, of strength to hold the bag and cardio to drag the bag over to <laughs> the dog dish to pour it out. Um, so uh, it's where, uh, it, it falls into different domains. So it can be, um, physical exertion at work. It can be physical exertion, um, in transportation activities. So if you walk to the bus stop, that is physical activity. Um, it's not planned recreational activity, but it still burns calories. It still, you know, is increasing your heart rate, respiratory rate. So, um, and, and, to my mind, that's more accessible for people to think about because one of one of the concerns or barriers that people often express is they don't have time. Mm -hmm. That is a big barrier to being physically active. But it may be that people are thinking about it only in terms of I don't have time to take out of my busy day to do this planned recreation. Whereas if you can get them to think a little differently about everything that they're already doing. You know, if you are walking up and down stairs at work, that is physical activity or in your home, you know. Um, if you're chasing if, your toddler, if you are vacuuming your home. Absolutely. It all counts. It all <laughs> yeah. counts. And if you, if you can um, say, okay, well, I'm already going to do these things, but maybe I'm going to do them with a little bit more vigor to increase my intensity, then you're actually getting more physical activity. Um, and so that is potentially a way that people can increase their total activity without taking any extra time. So it's interesting lately, and probably because I met you, uh, a thought that has been occurring to me um, is that people can engage in exercise, planned recreation for their hour a day, let's say, but otherwise be sedentary. 
And so I have thought a lot about that because I feel like what you're doing is actually combating the 23 hours of the day that is not what I'm working on. That's yes. been one of my repeating thoughts since I met you. And, and there is a whole separate set of literature on the effects of sedentary behavior. And, um, and I think it's starting to sort of get out into public consciousness now that sedentary behavior will undo your physical activity. Yeah. That if you that if you engage in too much sedentary behavior, it doesn't matter if you're getting that hour a day mm-hmm. um, of extra of planned recreation. And that was something, boy, you better believe that was on my mind while I was chained to my computer writing my dissertation. I'm sure. I'm <laughs> sure. How, how sedentary my behavior had become, um, and you know, and and so yeah, the lifestyle physical activity is a way that you know if if people can make a conscious decision, okay, I have a 30 minute lunch break. I'm going to take 10 of those minutes and I'm going to walk. Yep. You know, um, mm-hmm. they're still not taking any additional time, but now not only are they increasing their, their, their energy expenditure, they're also breaking that sedentary pattern. You know, if you just, you know, and I'm certainly guilty of this eating lunch at my desk, mm-hmm. um, you know, or just moving to a different room to sit and eat. Um, you know, I, I, I should try to be more intentional about saying, okay, well, maybe I'll run down to the laundry room. Um, you know, I live in an apartment building in Chicago, so I've got to go down a couple flights of stairs. I will go throw in a load of laundry over my lunch break and just to get on the stairs and, you know, I'm sort of killing two birds with one stone because the laundry's not going to do itself. So on that note, I'm so glad you stopped me from launching right into your research because that was so important, but it also reminds me of one more thing I think we should actually mention before you launch in, um, and that is, can you talk a little bit about the guidelines around physical activity um, for the general population, but also just for um, people who are pregnant? Uh, And I don't know if you have any points to make specific to how the physical activity that you're focused on relates to how we talk about it when we're talking about quote unquote moderate activity, you know, mm-hmm. moderate, moderate levels of exercise. Mm-hmm. So the, the recommendations for pregnancy physical activity are no different than they are for the general adult population. So that recommendation is 150 minutes weekly of moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity. So, and, and, during pregnancy, we really focus more on the moderate end of the physical activity spectrum. Um, there's certainly not anything wrong with engaging in vigorous activity, but you know there are anatomical and physiological changes that happen during pregnancy that may make that less accessible. Um, and we certainly don't want to introduce any new barriers. Um, one thing that we don't know is what is the minimum threshold of physical activity that's efficacious. We just don't know that. Um, We're very focused on this sort of standard guideline. In fact, the the ACOG guidelines specifically talk about planned recreation. They don't even talk about lifestyle physical activity. And I don't think that this is an intentional thing. I think this is just the way that it got written. Um, So, because, you know, know, American College of Obstetrician Gynecologists are not exercise physiologists. They're not steeped in the door. (laughs) So, um, but that's that's how the guidelines are written. Um, So, and we also don't really know the effects of sedentary behavior specifically on pregnancy. Um, Pregnant people are just hard to study and just, 
you know, I, I don't think anybody would disagree with that for, for lots of reasons and possibly um, some, some reasons that we've done to ourselves over the years. Um, so uh, those guidelines are helpful in that it sort of can give you, um, for someone who's very motivated, a goal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if that's, some, if that's something that's helpful to an individual. Mm-hmm. But it can also be a barrier. And it can be that you can give the impression that if you're not achieving this 150 weeks of moderate intensity physical activity that we know is associated with improved health outcomes, that anything less than that is not worth anything. And that's mm-hmm. not true either. Yeah, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Exactly. Um, but it's unfortunate that we're not at a point where we can make a statement like, I'm making this up, this is not real. Um, 300 minutes of low intensity movement equals that of 150 minutes of moderate. Like, it's a shame that we're not at a place where we can make a bold statement of that nature. Or do you think it's like a moot point? Hey everyone, it's me, Tanya, your host here at the Motherwit Podcast. You know I sometimes invite my clients on the show to talk about their birth stories and postpartum experiences, but I want to tell you a little bit more about what those clients and I actually do together. I started Motherwit to help people in the perinatal period achieve their health and wellness goals. That means whether you're hoping to conceive and struggling with high blood pressure or high blood sugar, or you're having trouble managing anxiety or depression in the postpartum period, or maybe you just need support and advocacy between prenatal or postpartum visits, I can help. Get a discount on your first consultation with me at motherwitmaternity.com using the code FIRSTCONSULT10% OFF. That's 10% symbol, all one word. I'm looking forward to working with you and maybe having you on the show too. So it's it's interesting. I do think that there's that there, there is pretty wide recognition now that... Um, that pregnant people, if they're physically active, tend to engage in lower amounts, lower intensities of physical activity. Um, and so we may not even be recognizing the activity level that people are actually engaging in with this fixation on moderate intensity mm-hmm. activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in my own research and my in my dissertation study, I did focus on moderate intensity activity. But part of that, mm-hmm. it's like almost a catch-22 because you want your study to be able to be compared to other studies. And so if everybody is looking at modern intensity physical activity, then you sort of have to look at modern intensity physical activity too. Otherwise, you can't really compare. Um, you know, at least in a, a small dissertation study like what, what I've done. But certainly looking forward, I am interested in measuring, mm-hmm. um, you know, lower levels of activity, having measures. And this is, you are see, starting to see this more often just sort of broadly in the, in the physical activity literature, measuring sedentary behavior separately from physical mm-hmm. activity. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I things are it. changing. Things are changing, but it's, you know, everything takes time. Totally. Okay. You've hinted at a few things already. So now I think it's time to <laughs> tell us <laughs> a little bit about your study. Okay. So the one, the one aspect of, of my study that we haven't really talked about yet is uh, that I focused exclusively on black pregnant people. And I was very intentional in, in doing that. Um, first of all, um, black pregnant people have been virtually ignored in this literature. Um, uh, most of the studies that have been done on pregnant people have been overwhelmingly done in white, well-educated middle-class populations. Um, 
And in those studies that did include, um, a, you know, a sufficient like sample of people of other races and ethnicities, there was no subgroup analysis. They're just sort of lumped in. Mm -hmm. um, there was one study that I looked at that um, was actually done in a national sample. So it had a huge number of participants and they looked at white people and then everybody else. So they lumped every other race and ethnicity into this sort of other category, mm. which just, you know, is really, um, it just feels gross. That's <laughs> just Definitely. not right. Um, it's, 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 it, it seems it's white norming, you know, and we mm. see this throughout the, the medical literature, you know, that, that, that white is your reference and then, and then everything else is somehow different. Yep. Um, or that whatever we know about white people can automatically be applied to people of other races and ethnicities. And this has sort of been the dominant paradigm for a long time and it's, it needs to change. Mm -hmm. So, um, the other reason that I was very interested in, um, looking at a sample of all black pregnant people is because this is the population in the United States that is experiencing the greatest amount of um, maternal mortality and morbidity. And I'm sure the, the population for your podcast knows that very well. So I won't um, belabor that point. But a couple of the um, co more common complications of pregnancy, specifically gestational diabetes and um, pregnancy hypertension, both of which physical activity actually improves. It can prevent it and it can treat it. Um, but, and you would think, well, gosh, this should be, you know, super accessible to everyone. But as we've said before, apparently not. And we don't know why. So I wanted to know for my dissertation research, what factors influence black people's pregnant, black pregnant people's, um, physical activity behavior. And so I was looking at characteristics that, um, you know, are sort of reside within the individual, like how confident are they to be physically active, um, relationships that might affect a, a person's um, feelings about being physically active. So social support from their family and social support from their friends to be physically active. And then I was looking at factors that sort of are broadly exist, you know, outside the individual. They all affect the individual, but they may not be things that the individual can affect as much as their confidence or their social support. So their neighborhood characteristics, experiences of discrimination, um, and also various demographic characteristics, you know, so uh, age, um, education, income, sort of those, those sorts of factors. And then um, I measured people's physical activity by having them wear um, a physical activity monitor. So this was a research grade monitor um, called an accelerometer. Um, and then they also answered survey questions about what their physical activity was like during their pregnancy using a, an instrument that was intended for use in pregnant people. Um, and then I looked to see what are, what are the relationships? What are the associations between these, these different factors to see if there was anything that seemed like it could, um, potentially be, um, either a factor that needed to be accounted for when you're looking at, well, how can we, um, potentially develop a, 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 a an intervention that might help improve somebody's pregnancy, physical activity. Um, you know, for example, um, sometimes people will cite, uh, lack of childcare as a resource. And if it looked like people who had already had children had more, um, 
barriers to being physically active, that could be something that potentially needed to be accounted for in an intervention. Um, or, you know, it did it seem more like internal factors, you know, that it was really their confidence to be physically active, whether they were receiving social support, if those things seemed to be affecting their behavior. Um, and there are some things that were known from um, those prior studies that have been done on, on white, well-educated, middle-income women um, that had been identified um, as potential barriers or potential facilitators that could be, um, you know, targeted in a in an intervention. Um, and what I found in my study was that none of the things that had been identified in white pregnant people seemed to be influenced the behavior of my sample of black pregnant people. Now, of course, this is just one little snapshot of folks residing in the Midwest. All my data was collected during the pandemic. Um, you know, there were definitely factors that could have could have influenced things, and it could have just be just the sample of people. But it does point to to an idea that you can't take what you know has been done in other countries with other populations and say that okay, these factors are are somehow universal and apply to every pregnant person's experience. So, um, really, what this dissertation taught me was that I have a ton more to learn. <laughs> I guess that's the way it is with every study, right? I mean, most studies are going to raise more questions than they will answer. And that's what then propels the future of more and hopefully better research, right? Yes. Um, yes so in your case, goal. I think you're hitting on some really beautiful ideas that people need to hear, um, like don't group everybody as other. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Maybe let's be intentional about our, our, our study populations and, our, and who's, who's included in our sample. Um, that was such a great point. Um, you know, one thing that I was thinking about when I realized that, oh my gosh, you did this all during COVID, was I think everyone can relate to how important your social network is, your social supports, I should say, um, in being able to engage in activity of any kind. And that had to be really hard for people during COVID. I would imagine that that was one of the biggest changes that happened for people. I don't know, you know how you went about talking to people about that or talking about it per se. Yeah, yeah, I, I had one question and one survey that had to do with people's confidence to be physically active um, that asked how how difficult it was. And it sort of asked them to rate on a, on a zero to 100 percent, how confident are you that you could overcome this barrier? And one of the questions was, how confident are you that you could find a place that you would feel safe from COVID? Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, I did not do an analysis just of that one question. Sure. Um, but you know, the, it, we definitely had to account for it. I mean, it def, it, it affected things like, um, you know, where I could meet people to give them the, um, the accelerometer device that they wore during their pregnancy, you know, to, to gather sure. their physical activity information, you know, um, trying to stand six feet away from people with my mask on. And, yeah. <laughs> those, yeah. 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 Wow. So I'm curious if you came into this with your own ideas or hypotheses about what you would find and if you or if you were able to refrain from having ideas like that and then how it all turned out. Yeah, no, I definitely had hypotheses and my, my hypotheses were based on a, another um, paper that I'd written. This was actually a systematic review of, of 
um, studies, non-intervention studies that had looked to examine what factors influence pregnancy physical activity. And that's where a lot of my ideas about what types of, um, what types of variables I would include came from. Um, acknowledging the fact that a lot of these studies were cross-sectional, so they were just looking at a snapshot in time, that the populations were mostly white, you know, then, and my study was going to be different. My study was a, a sample of all black pregnant people, and I did a longitudinal study, so I did all of these things twice, about 10 weeks apart during their pregnancy, during the second and the third trimester. But I had to start from somewhere. I had to, you know, say, okay, well, these are the variables I'm going to examine. And for my systematic review, it, it really very clearly demonstrated in that review that it was things that could potentially be modified, like self-efficacy, that seemed to really um, um, influence people's behavior. Um, if people were confident that they could be physically active, they were much more likely to be physically active. Um, if they had a habit of being physically active prior to pregnancy, they were more likely to be physically active during their pregnancy, you know, so there were, there were, there were these factors that seemed to reside within the individual that, um, could, that seemed to have much greater impact than whether you were, you know, had a college education or, you know, what your income was or, um, you know, things that, that I tend to think of as being more difficult to, um, manipulate within an intervention. Maybe manipulate's not exactly the right word because I don't want to sound like a little, you know, Machiavellian, you know, scheming <laughs> person that I'm going to like get people to do what I want. That's not what I'm trying yeah. to say. But um, it's a lot easier to um, try to build up somebody's confidence than it is to, um, you know, change their neighborhood, for example. Sure. Yeah. That's a great point. Are you able to say from your research what activities were the most commonly engaged in and what what types of things maybe you were surprised by because they were the least commonly engaged in so one of the this is very consistent across the literature is that the the activity that my sample most commonly engaged in was walking um walking during pregnancy seems to be um, an activity that lots of different folks are, are um, comfortable doing, that they're comfortable, they're confident, they can do it. Um, and I don't think that COVID really changed that a whole lot because this was an outdoor activity, you know, and that was basically about the only place that we could move around freely was if we were just outdoors. Um, so um, that didn't surprise me. One of the activities that came up um, as not only being uh, an activity that a lot of the folks in my sample engaged in prior to pregnancy, but they also continued throughout their entire pregnancy was dance. There was lots of folks that were dancing. Um, and I thought, and that is not something that I've seen um, mentioned. Um, so basically the, the top two were walking was number one, dancing was number two. And when you say dancing, I don't know if you can answer this, but like, do you just mean like somebody putting on music in their home and dancing around their house or like semi more structured than that? Um, <laughs> it was undefined. However, the, <laughs> however, the person filling out the survey defined dance. That's, that's, I love that. Yeah. That's really, really cute. Yeah. Um, but I, awesome. I thought, you know, that, that, that once again, that's something that can be sort of infinitely modified, you know, as mm -hmm. pregnancy progresses, you know, yeah. that yeah. it may have been. Um, you know, being very social, being out in a public place and, um, you know, dancing with your friends prior mm -hmm. to pregnancy. And then maybe by the time you got to your third trimester of pregnancy, it was something that you were doing more, you know, uh, slower music, maybe in your own home. You know, I don't know because I didn't ask those kinds of questions, but that would be a wonderful thing to explore um, is to find out more about, um, you know, 
what is it what type of dance and, and where where are people engaging in dancing and you know how did they feel about um, sustaining that behavior over the course of their pregnancy so fun fact about me i dance argentine tango i have for oh. a gazillion years and i danced it through my pregnancy which was really interesting to maintain my center of balance while very pregnant uh in high heels nonetheless um i wow. don't think i could do that now but <laughs> <laughs> i think that's why i was so interested in the dance as a as an option because i was definitely the only pregnant belly that was showing up uh, at argentine tangos <laughs> That is a very vigorous form of dance. That is not, uh, that is not for the fate of heart. I was also 19, 20 years old. So just a little context, right? Like I was a dancer and that was something I did for fun. Well, gosh, we had, we last night on the Super Bowl, we had Rihanna. I know. That was crazy. I just saw that too. Wonderful. Wonderful. That was so interesting. Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, I am not a, not a football fan and I don't know what made me turn on the Super Bowl last night, but I watched it and I was so glad to, I kept looking at her belly. I'm like, I know she had a baby recently. Is this postpartum belly or is she having a baby? (laughs) So I had a similar thing. So my husband was watching it. Um, and I said, call me over when the halftime show comes on. I don't normally care, but I had seen a post on Instagram of Rihanna with a very big pregnant belly. And there were like words over top that was a quote from her about how important it was for her kid to see her do this. And I remember being not sure whether she would be pregnant or not. Like that post wasn't, it wasn't clear to me. Anyway, Mm -hmm. we're watching it and I think she looks a little pregnant, but her belly looks so much smaller than the picture I saw. So then I was confused and, Mm -hmm. and Pablo, my husband says, um, I think she had a baby recently. And I thought, well, so maybe that's a postpartum belly. I don't know. And then I, it ended and sure enough, I immediately saw the headline. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, but she was, uh, I mean, that was some vigorous dancing she was doing. No I, kidding. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, I don't think, I don't think I could get my hips to move like that, so. Now, uh, well, not to mention, she was very brave going up on those floats that went very high yes. up in the air. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. Are you pregnant and thinking about what making milk for your baby will be like? Do you wonder why feeding human babies human milk has become so challenging? I'm Lo Nigrosh, a lactation consultant and host of the Milk Making Minutes, a podcast that explores baby feeding through the lens of systemic and cultural barriers. Come listen to others share their insight about their own milk making experiences and empower yourself to feed your own babies in the way that feels best for you. Um, so what, was there anything, just to finish that thought, was there anything that you expected to see people do that they weren't doing at all in terms of just regular physical activity? You know, I think that the, the thing that, and this isn't a type of activity, this gets back to my, you know, actual that device that people were wearing that was measuring their physical activity was just how little activity people were getting and I was looking at Mm -hmm. moderate intensity activity and you know I said Mm -hmm. earlier that you know this is something that is probably um, not um, exactly what we should be doing when we're Mm -hmm. examining um, pregnancy physical activity Um, but you know the the 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity physical activity that we're supposed to be encouraging everybody to get um, the sample of people that I um, had in my study were getting 20 minutes a week of modern intensity activity 
So wow. way, way, way below. Um, so it's funny. At one point, I had a question for you that now I can tell is moot, but I think it's an interesting thing to bring up. I initially wondered if putting a monitor on somebody would make them change their behavior from what it typically is at their baseline. And I was thinking where I was getting that from, I know you're following me already, is when you ask someone to do a food diary, they right. often change their, their dietary intake because they're already feeling watched. Even without you know, giving them advice or anything, they will often be like, oh, maybe I won't eat that cupcake because my midwife's going to look at this. Like there's that way that people can change their behavior. And I wondered if that would happen. But I'm guessing mm -hmm. with these low numbers, that doesn't appear to be the case. Yeah, I don't think that I don't think that 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 happened during the study. Um, I very intentionally, when I was talking to people about the study, said I don't want you to change your Got regular it. activity. This is really, you know, I'm wanting mm -hmm. to know what you're just doing in your day to day life. Mm. Um, yeah. So, but you're absolutely right that you know it's that so that's that quantum physics thing that you know the moment that you observe something you have changed its nature. You know, and that's yeah. absolutely true when you're studying human behavior as well. So the other thing, though, that I think comes up in this, and I don't know if, you know, there was a way to make sense out of this, even though I know that in theory you'll agree with me. Um, you know, when we see these low levels of physical activity in pregnancy, how much of that, this is like the big question, how much of that can we attribute to fear of physical activity causing harm? Because that's one of the reasons I'm so engaged in the work that I do, because I think that we as healthcare providers inadvertently instill fear in people. And I think we have, it's a vicious cycle. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any sense of if that's why we see it so low, or if that's mm -hmm. just not something we could capture in the study that you did. So not, not, I didn't look at that specifically in my study. What I looked at was whether Pregnancy worries as a general statement seem to influence behavior, and I didn't mm -hmm. find an association between that. So, Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I used a, a survey questionnaire called the Pregnancy Distress Questionnaire that mm -hmm. asked specifically about, um, in, a, in a number of different domains, things mm -hmm. that might concern somebody during their pregnancy from concerns about their health, concerns about their baby's health, concerns about um, mm -hmm. economic um, uh, changes, changes in their relationship. Um, so not specifically about concerns regarding physical activity, but in the qualitative literature, that's something that has come up. Um, hmm. yeah, that people, um, that, that, and it's, it can be, it's, it's really sort of interesting. It's kind of, um, there, it's a double edged sword in that it's sort of, um, if you aren't convinced that being physically active is, is, uh, something that is important and that you value that during pregnancy, people tend to sort of like really stick to that belief. Whereas people who really value being physically active and think it's really important to their health, sometimes will go the opposite way where they will, you know, being, be very, you know, adamant that I'm going to continue to do my very intense physical activity during my pregnancy. So it can it sort of cut both it cuts both ways. So um, I agree with you entirely that that um, you know we we have I think overemphasized that you must be safe mm -hmm. to you know engage in physical activity during pregnancy probably to the point that it's not really it's been more harmful than helpful. And certainly if you look over time at physical activity guidelines they have changed wildly 
Um, that's a really fun dive if you ever want to get and just, you know, look at um, the, the literature out there about guidelines for physical activity during pregnancy. I mean, ACOG, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, didn't have their first statement on pregnancy physical activity until the mid-80s. So, <laughs> thank you, Jane Fonda. Yeah, yes. but you I know, actually don't know if Jane Fonda had anything yeah. to do with it. But. <laughs> but I mean, really, you can say that uh, this was this was ACOG responding to the culture. I think sure, for sure, sure. you yeah, know, yeah. Um, yeah. So I yeah. think you probably we probably can at least in part thank Jane Fonda for that. Um, yeah. But if you just look back more at like just sort of general guidelines for being you know healthy during your pregnancy and the in the the the. Um, you know, early 1900s, the advice was um, to pregnant um, people was to not ride your horse, which, you know, <laughs> makes sense, but that they should walk three miles a day. Can you imagine if we sat down with a, with a person in the OB clinic and said, you know, you really got to start walking three miles a day. <laughs> well, first of all, we would not say it like that. Now we would tell somebody how many steps that is that they have to take. That's right. That's right. And that would be what, 30,000 steps, I think? I, 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 don't, I actually don't know. I feel like I should know, but I'm kind of numerically inept when it comes to like just remembering numbers. It's way like, more than 10,000. I can tell you that. Yeah. I, well, that's I can't remember. I'm like, when I walk 10,000 steps... How many miles does that always turn out to be? I can't even yeah. remember. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And that that's a whole other conversation. That 10,000 steps thing is not oh, yeah. like based on like that arbitrary number yeah. that, that everybody's striving for now. That's right. And yet when somebody says it with enthusiasm, I really have a hard time. I just go, I'm not even going there. Like this person's right. act enthusiastic about it. So I'm not going to take that away from them. <laughs> that's right. And that's really, I mean... I, that and that's where we should be focusing our conversations mm -hmm. with folks about being physically active during pregnancy instead of trying to quote educate them that it's safe mm -hmm. being you know like i was saying earlier you know that people sort of they come with a with a set of beliefs and you know it's i i say often you know if all it took was education nobody would smoke cigarettes Sure, I don't know anybody sure. who doesn't know that smoking's bad for them, but I know lots of people that smoke. So education is not the key. Um, so it's point. not to convince people that being physically active during pregnancy is safe. It's saying, okay, well, what, where, you know, do you value this? You know, what are, what are your interests in your pregnancy? You know, what is it that it's important to you from this experience? And then, you know, what types of activities or what kind of behaviors, I don't even want to say activities, what type of behaviors would help that person to achieve their stated goals for their mm -hmm. pregnancy and just let them work it through. You know, um, if, if there were somebody that, um, you know, had, was not physically active prior to pregnancy, you know, is there a time in the past when they ever were active? Mm -hmm. And what benefits did they perceive from that? And how do they feel that those that they might realize some of those benefits now? You know, um, when the, in the beginning of the conversation, we're saying that there's really not a whole lot that pregnancy physical activity doesn't improve. That is true. Right. You know, if you're having a rough time sleeping during pregnancy, which a lot of people say that that's a concern, being physically active can be something that would be helpful for that. You know, I mean, there's so it's it's aligning people's needs and people's values with their behavior. Well, and, and to go out on a tangent to something unrelated to this, but you know, to make that point even stronger, I see this idea in action most commonly for me when somebody's postpartum and they start to say things like, 
I recognize that I'm going to need to be able to keep up with this baby who's becoming a toddler. And, or they'll say, I want to be healthier so that I can enjoy my kid and my family for longer. There's these various wake up calls that happen for people. Yeah. Um, I I see them a lot postpartum. That's change talk. That's Mm. people thinking about how can I make a change that's going to improve meet my goals. You know, if my, if my goal is to be able to keep up with my toddler, you know, what changes and, and that's listening for those cues and, and, and picking up on them as a clinician is so important and just saying, wow, yeah, I hear what you're saying that, you know, you, yes, toddlers can be a a handful to keep up with. What are you thinking about doing? Um, and just, you know, starting the conversation from there. So the whole thing about guidelines and what, you know, what, whatever professional organization Mm -hmm. recommends, blah, blah, blah. If somebody values that, if they explicitly state, I would really like to know what ACOG says about pregnancy Mm -hmm. physical activity, share it. You know, if they're talking about how, you know, their major goal is to, um, you know, not, um, uh, have, uh, a preterm birth, you know, that's, that's a, 150 minutes of physical activity, even though we know that it's associated with lower rates of preterm birth, that number means nothing. Um, but you know, what behaviors does a person think that they can, um, um, achieve that's going to help to meet their goal of, of having their baby at full term, you know, and if, if sharing information about how being physically active can, um, improve that is helpful to them great, share it, you know, it might help move the needle a little bit. But I really think, you know, right now, um, that's really where we need to be focusing the conversation is, um, you know, to what is important to that individual. Well, I love hearing glimmers of how it is that you now talk to your clients about this topic. It's really beautiful. Um, And on that note, I want to talk more and, and please stop me if there's something else about your research that we haven't gotten to that as that you want to get out there. But I also want to talk to the people that are considering doing a doctoral program, the, the midwives that are going to do a doctor of nursing practice or a doctor of midwifery or get a PhD and, you know, all the various other health professionals or birth workers that are considering taking on this huge task. It is something I have thought about over and over and over again. And over and over and over again, I come back to, (laughs) nope, my reason for nope is deeply rooted in how much student loan debt I still have. Mm. And that's the the end of the conversation in my mind. But that aside, um, I think there are people that are ready. They're at a stage of their career and a stage of their life where they're considering this. Um, And I think people have a lot of different feelings about it. Can you talk Mm -hmm to us a little bit about your journey to making this decision and what that was like for you and what the experience itself was like? Sure, sure. So um, in a a certain respect, the decision was made for me about whether I was going to pursue a doctoral degree or not. And that was because I had um, taken a faculty position Mm -hmm. at Frontier Nursing University. And this was in, in the time period before before the um, the program that people were enrolling in was a doctoral program. It was still a master's program, and then we had a post-master's um, DNP. Um, but when the program changed so that people were basically enrolling in a DNP program, people like myself who had a master's uh, degree really sort of needed to go ahead and move towards that um, doctoral degree. 
Um, so in a way, the decision was made for me because um, I wanted to keep my job. <laughs> That's but fair. then the decision was, you know, do I want to get a, a DNP, a doctor in nursing practice, or do I want to get a PhD? Um, and a PhD is a research doctoral degree. So, um, and I really saw that from where I was in my career that I really, um, I didn't picture ever being, um, you know, a full-time clinician again. Um, that really academia was going to be where um, I was going to stay for the rest of my career. So to me, a DNP didn't make as much sense because it's a clinically focused degree. Um, so I decided to pursue the PhD. And and, such a helpful answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's yeah. so simply stated, but I think a lot of people need to hear that baseline answer before going on from there. That's so important just to make that decision. And how do you make that decision? Yeah. Yes. You know, if you are, um, you know, if you are a clinician and that's really where your heart is and where you want to stay, getting a DNP is definitely the way to go. And there are, there are distinct advantages to having a DNP. I mean, the, the master's prepared midwife or nurse practitioner has got um, a really solid foundation for um, engaging with patients one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and operating within a group practice. What the DMP does is it really sort of moves that skill set to the higher level of working within a healthcare system um, and being able to affect change on a higher level than just the one-on-one -on -one interactions that we've been talking about so far in this conversation. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's a worthwhile in, in my humble opinion, <laughs> degree to, to mm -hmm. get, um, just, just for that reason, it's a lot, um, it's not that you can't gain those skills without the, the doctorate, but, um, you know, it, it's, it, I think it's always easier to go to a, a, an organized program where they're going to teach you these set of skills than trying to seek out the opportunities on your own and identify mm -hmm. all the knowledge that you need to gather. So, yeah. um, then the, the research doctorate is really, um, you know, if you are wanting to um, be operating on a different level where you are really trying to generate the evidence that's then going to inform clinical practice down the road. So, you know, sort of the, some of the um, things that I talked about today in my own research, you know, the idea is that eventually it's going to get to the point where there's, a, there's an intervention that can be tested to see whether it improves um, physical activity for black pregnant people. Um, I actually don't think that, that that intervention is going to reside within the healthcare setting at all. I really think that this is something that needs to reside within the community um, mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons. Um, healthcare providers, I mean, gosh, all the laundry list of things that need to be taken care of in a, in a quote, 15 minute prenatal appointment. Mm. Holy moly, you're lucky mm -hmm. if you've got all 15 minutes, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, it, I think that it's tough to, to really, because it's such an individual decision and, um, you know, requires really sort of like intense time um, to, to, you know, really flesh out what it is that a person can do to be um, more physically active that probably in a, in a non-healthcare setting is probably a better place for that to reside. But that's just, that's where I am right now in my thinking. I might try out a community-based intervention and think, nope. No, nope. <laughs> what I really got to do is get the healthcare providers on board. No. Um, it may change. So what have you found most rewarding about this so far? Oh, gosh. Um, 
I, getting this dissertation has um, been, a, I mean, it took me seven years. And a lot of, and it's not because it's a seven-year degree, it's a four-year degree, but it took me seven because of some, um, you know, changes that happened in my life. Um, you know, we all had a global pandemic, and then I had some personal challenges as well um, that definitely lengthened out my program. Um, but even if I would have finished it in four years, um, it would have been the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, just the, the, I thought I was a good writer until I started this program. I thought that I was a pretty good, like critical thinker until I started this program. You know, there was, it was a very humbling experience. Um, but coming out of it, I feel like, um, I have really, really, really like developed, um, a, a very deep well of knowledge about this thing that I was very interested in pregnancy physical activity mm -hmm. um, that I can draw on now I have met some amazing people I have seen what other disciplines are doing in this area it's not just you know midwives and and obstetricians that are um, you know doing this work there's exercise physiologists are super interested in pregnant oh, yeah pregnant people, you know, in a way that I didn't appreciate until I had started this degree. So, um, well, that's why I like the Canadian guidelines more than, well, I like the Canadian guidelines of, around exercise in the perinatal period more than the, the ACOG ones to begin with for other reasons, mm -hmm. but they did that statement jointly with exercise physiologists. And I was like, right on, good for yeah. you for working together. That's what it should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all need to get out of our silos, right? Yeah, you know, totally. Yeah, start talking totally. to people, yeah. So um, I was gonna ask you what your biggest challenges were too, and I think you may have just spoken to that. Um, mm -hmm. That really was interesting to hear you say that you thought you were good at these things. And so I'm gonna guess that you were already good at them, but that you that change and learning can be so hard that now mm -hmm. you're just like catapulted to another level. But do you feel in retrospect like you were not truly were not good and now you are? Or what like what's that like? Um writing scientific writing is really different. You know, writing a research paper is just a really different, it's kind of like, um, I took one semester of journalism, <laughs> uh, and learning how to write, um, for media and it's just a really different way of doing things. And so that's, that's, I think really what I mean. It's not that, you know, I had poor grammar or something like that, you know, before I started this program or, you know, yeah. wrote in incomplete sentences. Um, it's just, I didn't have the technical skills. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, really like, like for about the first two years of the degree, I would listen to my professor's talk and it was almost like I was listening to somebody speak a language that was sort of like English, but not exactly mm. English, you know, mm -hmm. because, and, and their minds just worked so differently. Like they could see mm -hmm. things um, that I was just like, wow, they're, they're like operating on a whole different level mm -hmm. than me. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really, you know, that, that's, that, that was a very humbling experience, you know. Because, you know, I've, I've thought of myself as, you know, I'm a faculty member at a university. You're a faculty member at a university. We have so much in common. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that's, it, it gets to be that, um, you know, I, I teach midwifery students and I see that same sort of role transition from RN to CNM, you know, mm -hmm. where they're like, I'm a labor and delivery provider. I'm a labor and delivery nurse. You know, you're a labor and delivery provider. You're a CNM. We have so much in common. 
And yes, that you do have a lot in common with that person, but you know, with each other, but, um, you know, once we start talking about clinical management and start talking about like all of the pieces that need to go into making clinical decisions, the RN sort of says, wow, there's a bigger role transition here than I thought. And I was going mm-hmm. through that same process. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Going well put. From, yeah. I love being it. A clinically focused midwife to being an academically focused nurse researcher. So I think that speaks to one of the most common things we all go through with growing pains, but possibly also, um, I don't know, I'm, I want to say women-dominated professions probably have this more, um, and that is imposter syndrome. Like, would you say that you experienced outright imposter syndrome or not quite at that level? Um, I don't think, I, I, I really don't think that that I dealt a whole lot with imposter syndrome. I mean, I'm a, I'm a little bit older. I'm 53. <laughs> and I think that there, some of that's just a function of age. You know, I've mm-hmm. been around the block, you know, yeah. and, um, you know, I can, I definitely can see the value in my previous life experiences and how they apply mm-hmm. to what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that that's really helpful. Um, does that mean that I was never intimidated or felt like I was like, you know, like maybe, um, maybe in the, in the deep end of the pool a little sooner than I wanted to be. Mm. Absolutely. I definitely mm-hmm. had uncomfortable moments, you know, where I was like, oof. Yeah. Uh, the first I presented, um, not my dissertation research, but another um, secondary analysis that I had done um, at a um, research conference at Rush University where I got my doctoral degree um, shortly after the pandemic when we could all be in public together again, but everybody was masked. And it was in one of those like traditional medical theaters, you know, where like the seating goes straight up. Mm -hmm. And these were, you know, people from the College of Nursing, people from the College of Medicine, you know, um, very esteemed, you know, faculty and researchers and administrators. And um, I just remember standing down in the well and looking up and just thinking, holy moly, how did I get here? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So on a final note, do you have a piece of advice that you would give to somebody embarking on a similar journey? So I got a really good piece of advice from one of my co-faculty when I started my PhD. And I think that this applies to whether it's a DMP or a PhD. It's a marathon. You know, it's about endurance. If you just keep moving forward, you will finish. Um, You know, basically, and I think that that's true. And I would honestly, I would say the same thing for somebody who's considering um, moving from a BSN to an MSN. Um, and that, you know, you are, if you have been accepted into the program, you have everything that it takes to finish the program. You would not have been accepted into it if you did not have the chops to finish it. The tough point is just continuing to move forward and, you know, in the face of those obstacles saying, you know what, um, I may not be able to focus a hundred percent on school right now, but I'm not going to let school go because this is still very important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and if you, if you can do that, you will finish, you will be successful. Awesome. Anything else you want to add before we part ways? Uh, Tanya, I really enjoyed writing that book chapter with you. I thought that our skills complemented each other, our different domains of, of our interests in, in pregnancy, physical activity. I thought complemented each other so well and uh, made it an incredibly strong book chapter. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it in print.
Me too. Me too. Thank you so much for talking to me um, and for letting me experiment with taking on an academic uh, on this show because it's definitely a first and we're going to follow this episode with one more. Another colleague of mine from Georgetown who's going to talk about her work next next episode. Um, so I feel like I broke the ice on doing something a little bit harder on the podcast. Thank you so much to, for joining me today. It was absolutely my pleasure, Tanya. Thank you for listening to the Mother Whip podcast. If any of the issues we discussed today resonate with you or your experience, I'd love to hear from you. Leave me a voicemail at 917-310-0573 or better yet, email me a voice memo at tanya at motherwitmaternity.com. I really want to hear what worked for you, what didn't work, what support you'd wish you had, how you got through the tough times, how you advocated for yourself, or especially any tips you want to share with our listeners. I want to hear all of it. And if you'd really like to work together, you can get a discount on your first consultation with me at motherwitmaternity.com using the code FIRSTCONSULT10% OFF. That's 10% symbol, all one word. Okay, that's all. It's wonderful being in community with you all. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. And remember, listeners, nothing we discuss on this show should ever be considered medical advice. Please speak to your local provider about anything that comes up in this show that resonates with you and your needs and your health care.